0: Hello Christchurch Baptist. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tom. I am a third year Bible college student and I've been with this church now for two and a half years. And I have the pleasure of bringing God's word to you this morning. As you can probably tell from my surroundings, I've not been able to come into the church for the live stream, so this has been recorded in advance. Um, however, I'm here now, so i um, And I have the pleasure of uh, bringing God's word. So let's uh, pray first and then I'll read the passage and then we'll get into it and get unpacking. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with each and every one of us today, Lord. We thank you for your word, which is good and teaches us about you. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit, who helps us to understand what we read. And we pray, Lord God, that you would meet with us this morning and speak a word to each and every one of us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created Established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So this week, Paul has launched into full preacher mode. This entire passage is expanding on the two preceding verses, that is, verse 13 and verse 14. These verses say he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this next part is the basis of all that Chris explained last week about spiritual wisdom as a gift of God. Scholars reckon that Paul has adapted a pre-existing hymn for this passage in order to develop on the rescuing that was mentioned in verse 13. So, starting at verse 15, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. There are probably some anecdotes out there of uh, people seeing Jesus in visions and in dreams, but I think for most of us, we don't see God walking down the street. And I've heard the objection personally myself if there is a God, why does he not come and speak with us himself? Why does he bother with a book? And some spirit that we can't see. But if you think about Jesus' life, that is precisely what God did. God came in Jesus. In the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him to show them the Father. This disciple was named Philip. And perhaps Philip was doubting Jesus' teachings or his identity. And so he decides to put Jesus to the test. Listen to Jesus' response. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus says, Philip, how can you not get it? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Here Jesus reflects the nature of his relationship with God the Father. That though he is the Son, a distinct person from the Father, they are both God. One and the same. I recently watched the film The Shack, uh, which is a great film in which the main character is struggling to believe that God is good because of the uh, personal struggle and torment and the suffering that he's experienced in his own life. His daughter was kidnapped by a serial kidnapper and she was killed. And as a result, he was unable to reconcile his mind with how God could have let that happen. And the whole premise of the film is that the three persons of the Trinity are embodied and portrayed by actors. And there's a scene in which he's speaking with the father in, the, in this kitchen as the father is making some bread. Um, and, and he begins to accuse the father of abandoning his daughter. And as the conversation turns to Jesus, he equally accuses him of abandoning Jesus and the father who is portrayed by a woman in the film turns her hand to reveal the nail mark in her wrist and she says to him don't ever think that what my son chose to do didn't cost us both dearly I never left him I am in the father and the father is in me Distinct as they may be, they are inseparable from one another. Paul has also been quite clever here using the term image of God because there is more to it than meets the eye. This is because the first person to be called the image of God in the Bible is Adam in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. And Paul has this in mind as he uses the term image. And it suggests a connection between Jesus and Adam that we see elsewhere in Paul's writings. We see this in Romans chapter 5 when he makes the comparison between Adam and Jesus. And he shows that while death came through the one man who was Adam, life has now come through the other man who is Jesus. He sums it up in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of the one man will be uh, many will be made righteous. This very same idea is seen here in Colossians 1. Jesus comes now as the image of God that did not fall and turn away from God. Jesus succeeded where Adam had failed. As such, Paul's usage of the term image both emphasises the incarnation of God in Jesus, that God became a man, which is a marvel in and of itself. But it also calls to mind the first image of God in order to contrast him now with Jesus, who is the image who did not succumb to temptation. Both Adam and Jesus were considered sons of God, And so Paul draws on this contrast to show how Jesus' life is lived the way that Adam should have lived his life, and indeed the rest of humanity along with Adam. You see, being God's image is not actually something that is inherent about being us. In In Genesis, God expands on what it means to be his image by giving Adam a job. He's told him to rule the earth and everything in it in the same way that God does. Adam's rule was to reflect God's. This is what made Adam in God's image. However, when Adam failed and disobeyed God, he no longer reflected God in what he did. So he no longer bore God's image. It's like we are mirrors that God has made. And at the beginning of creation, we were complete and whole. And if you look at a complete and whole mirror, it reflects an image perfectly. But then Adam disobeyed God and that mirror was cracked and made dirty. It was broken. And when you look into a dirty or broken mirror, you can't see the image um, of what is in front of it. It's a distorted image. It's not a perfect image. And then Jesus comes along and he is a brand new, pristine, fresh looking mirror, completely clean, without crack. And he now reflects God in the way that Adam was supposed to. So this is a reflection on how Jesus is completely holy and completely obedient to God. Moving on, it says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This is a reflection on the way that Jesus was there in the beginning with God. A notion that is paralleled in John 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse sixteen talks of Jesus' creative power. All of the categories given of the things Jesus created covers everything. There is nothing outside of what Jesus has made. This is a call for the Colossians to remember who Jesus is because of what Jesus has done. Only God could create. We see that in Genesis. And so to attribute this creative act to Jesus is to say that Jesus is God. Paul uses this as a reminder to the Colossians that this is the person that they are turning their back on. As they dilute the gospel, this is the person they're turning away from. Verse 17, we see that Jesus is actively maintaining all things. Not just that he created all things, but that he's actively maintaining them. So he didn't just create everything and then kick back his feet, uh, relax, and uh, just watch the world tick by. No, he actively maintains everything. The very molecules in our bodies, the very breaths in our lungs. It's another gracious gift from Jesus, who is God. I often reflect on God's grace, that no matter how far we fall from him, he is still gracious enough to provide us with our next breath. In verse 18 we see that he is the head of the body, that is the church. That is to say the whole body of all the believers in the world are submitted to Jesus as the head. It is good for us to pray for our brothers and sisters at CBC, absolutely. But it is also good for us to pray for our brothers and sisters in China, or America, or New Zealand, or Tanzania, you name it. We are part of a body of believers which covers the whole globe. And we can reflect that unity of being one body when we pray for one another. The next phrase is an interesting one, it says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. What does this mean? Well, Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received I pass on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The Jews believed that God had promised that those who have died will be raised in the last days. Here, Paul is demonstrating that Jesus is the first of those to be raised. So, when he says that Christ is firstborn among the dead, what he means is that he is the first to have been risen. And Paul, even further down in 1 Corinthians 15, defends the resurrection on the basis that Jesus. Has risen. Therefore, because Jesus has risen, we know that God has the power to raise the dead and that He can do the same for each and every one of His children, that is, the church. Furthermore, verse 18 says, So that in everything He might have supremacy. This section of the verse may seem a bit remote from the first section. I have to admit, when I read it, I thought, Okay, fair enough, but how is this relevant? But when you consider that in the Israelite culture, the firstborn son of the family would receive authority on the basis that he would receive his inheritance from the father, then you begin to understand that Jesus, as God's firstborn, has received all creation as his inheritance, therefore giving him authority over all creation. Once you understand that, you can see how Jesus' supremacy is relevant to the fact of him being the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19 All the fullness dwells in Jesus. This goes back to the whole idea of Jesus as the image of God. Because in reality, that terminology for us is quite limited. See, if we wanted to know what someone looked like, we could get our phones out and go on Facebook. Type in their name and then we'll see a picture of them. And that will show us what they look like. But no matter how hard we stare at that photo, we'll never get to know the person. But Paul's telling us that that's not the case here. Because Paul says that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Jesus is the real deal. You want to get to know God? then get to know Jesus because there is nothing besides Jesus that you need to hear about in order to know who God is. There is no past plus scheme with God. If you know Jesus, then you know God, the fullness of God. Such a rich phrase and it inspires wonder that in this one man could be found the whole extent of the creator of the universe the being who cast the stars into the sky and formed the earth through the power of his voice. You see, when I decided I wanted to study theology, it was because I had a thirst for knowing more about God. I had all these questions buzzing around in my head and a passion for getting to know him. And as I have been studying, I have indeed learned loads of things. There's, I've spent a lot of time in my Bible And I've even learned things about history, geography and psychology. It's been fascinating. And I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. But in fact, I think sometimes I've enjoyed it a bit too much. And sometimes I've enjoyed the learning for the learning's sake. And I've not been able to see the wood for the trees, so to speak. And that is to say that It's easy to get swept away and to forget that the crux and centre of my faith is Jesus. And he is the whole reason that I'm learning. And that is the simplicity of the gospel. There's no secret tomes you need to read. There's no sacred rituals. There's no uh, hidden texts. Chris previously mentioned the contrast that Paul is trying to make with the Gnostics, the people in the church who said that um, salvation came through obtaining secret knowledge of God. But Paul lays it out so simply, and that is that God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus, and we just need to spend time getting to know him. Jesus is God. Now, verse 20, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, before I was a Christian, I couldn't understand why the Friday before Easter was called Good Friday. I was baffled. Why did Christians celebrate Jesus's death? It didn't make sense to me. But right here in this verse is the reason for the celebration. It is because through that painful act, we have been reconciled to God. If we continue, it says in verse 21, Paul tells us that we were once alienated from God. We didn't know God, we were separated because of the evil deeds that humans naturally do. But now we can celebrate Good Friday because Christ, through the sacrifice of his physical body, and Paul emphasises the physicality of the sacrifice. Because of that sacrifice, the price has been paid for us to be freed from accusation and to be presented without blemish. There's something inexplicably liberating about knowing that our past mistakes won't be held against us. That the price has been paid and that the burden has been lifted. A burden that we can never carry on our own. If today you are trying to pay off the debt that is owed to God through good actions, then I promise you that you are running a marathon that is only getting longer. You are putting coins in a piggy bank that is only getting more empty. Your good work is like a drop of fresh water in a vast ocean of salt water. The debt is one that we could never repay. Jesus says so himself when he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. We are like that servant who can never pay back what he owed. So instead of counting the number of times we donate to charity or the number of times we help an old lady cross the road or the number of times we volunteer for a good cause, we need to follow the lead of this servant and get on our knees asking for God's mercy. Once we have done that, then we allow Jesus' blood to wash us clean and his sacrifice sets us free from that burden that we could never bear. And when we have done this, we can donate money to charity, Charity. we can help old ladies cross the road and. We can volunteer for good causes out of love for God and for one another rather than some sense of owing or guilt because Christ's blood liberates us. Jesus is God. Jesus is Saviour. And the final point that Paul is making is, as he finishes off in verses 23 and 24, if you continue in your faith, Established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. These two verses get to the whole reason that Paul is writing to the Colossians. He doesn't want them to deviate from the gospel, so he lays it out plainly. It is simple, and it is simply Jesus. I wonder... If Paul's words can be taken and applied to our setting today, if Paul was alive now, who would he be writing to? Would he write to CBC or would he write to you as an individual? Would he say, return to the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus is God, Jesus is Saviour, Jesus is gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are good. I thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for us. I thank you, Lord, that we don't need to uh, travel far and and read lots in order to know who you are, Lord, that you you are Jesus, plain and simple, and you want to know us, that you've revealed yourself to us so that we can know you. I pray, Father... That you would continue to reveal yourself to CBC in many ways, Lord. And I pray that this truth of the gospel, this simple truth, would sit in each and every one of our hearts. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would continue to teach us and help us to know you. In your holy name, amen.